knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, powered by the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I'm your host, Ben Page, and this episode is brought to you by HTR Innovations, FreelanceHuntStats.com, and DocsOutdoorSupplies.com. I want to give you a quick rundown on what the Waypoint Outdoor Collective is all about. So just enter into your podcast catcher or whatever you're listening to me on here and uh, type in Waypoint Outdoor Collective and hit subscribe to listen to not only the Foul Front, but the Tom Rowland podcast, Off Grid, and, uh, and a few other high quality podcasts. I teamed up with Waypoint because in this day and age, individuals with the same goal and heart need to band together and create a synergistic and powerful movement not only against those that are opposed to hunting but for those apathetic to the cause and don't quite understand our passion for all things wild and this week on the show i'm talking to jerry holden the southern region director for ducks unlimited and in this episode we're going to be addressing the question where are all the ducks Welcome to the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the Foul Front. Okay, today on the show, we've got Jerry Holden uh, back. I think the last time we had you was about 20 or 30 episodes ago, and uh, you and me, we've kind of been... Um, uh, talking ever since then, and uh, so Jerry Holden is the uh, South Regional Director for 
uh, Ducks Unlimited. And now is the, the season for conservation. Isn't that right, Jerry? That's right. So the south for uh, Ducks Unlimited is New Mexico over to Virginia and south. So it includes Oklahoma and Tennessee, but not Kansas, Missouri, and Kentucky. That's where the line is. But that's right. We finished our, our consumptive season where we take some from the resource and and then we hit it hard in February, um, the beginning of the cycle of putting it back. Awesome. Yeah, I think this is the time of year that you're starting to see, uh, you know, a bunch of people, uh, organizations starting to uh, give back, as you say. Uh, was it the take and the give, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, we all had, you know, this podcast has the ability to, uh, it has global reach, right, if people want to. But, but so within the duck season in the United States, there's, you know, highly variable success every year. But this year was particularly weird for those people that I work around, which is the southern duck hunters, the guys that are hunting at the terminus of the central, the Atlantic, and the Mississippi Flyway. Um, it was a challenge this season. We had a pretty dang warm season, maybe not record warm, but pretty warm. But it was record wetness. It still is. And, uh, and one of the ways to think about that is that it's great for ducks because they had tons of options. And remember, you know, the waterfowl, the business that they're about during the wintering period is to find a mate. And, and then when they find a mate, they get pretty territorial. And I know you've seen that when you're waterfowling. You get a pair come in, right, a drake and a hen, and they, they just don't want to do right because the drake wants to keep her away from the other drakes but she might want to go see the other drakes. And so often when that works out for you, it's the hen that comes in, right? And the, and yeah. the, drake, will, the drake will hang back. And that's really about pair bonds. And she's trying to select the best, the best mate that she can. And so ducks in the wintering period are trying to find, um, they need to get fat and they know they need to get fat, but they're also trying to find a mate and, and isolate that mate from other ducks and strengthen that pair bond so they can go back to the prairies in the springtime and do their business. And, and so this year ducks had an opportunity to spread out all over the landscape in the South and uh, really in lots of places. I mean, it was, it was just the Eastern half of the United States was, was extremely wet this year and warm enough that it didn't freeze very readily. And so water, waterfowl had tons of options. And, and what that causes is, um, how do I say this? There's a good deal of uh, of 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 descent, or not, uh, that's not the right word. Disappointment. There's a good deal of disappointment in the waterfowl season, and this, if you if you do what I do for a living long enough, you'll see that this too is cyclic. Uh, what is old is new again. Right. So I have a I have a great quote from you for you. It's two quotes, and the first one is: "It, it has resulted in mallards remaining longer in the Midwest during their migration." Mallards now winter north of their former wintering areas. And the second one is, I think the time is coming where these men will insist on more and better answers than have yet been given by the Wildlife Service or Ducks Unlimited to the question, what has happened to our waterfowl? These, these two phrases were published in Wildfowling in the Mississippi Flyway in 1949. 
And the reason I bring that forth is every decade or so, we have a really good duck season backed up with a really bad duck season. And people are uh, upset and they look for answers to why that is. And unfortunately, um, migration is a complicated thing. There are different, um, a bird like a mallard has the ability to feed in a field. And so he or she is able to do that. And so they can really take a lot of risks with freeze up. The science is pretty clear. We know they can make it almost a week without eating. Right. So it can yeah. freeze up really, really hard and they can just wait for a week. Whereas a bird like a gadwall, those are called wetland obligate species, meaning they get their food from a wetland. They can't be near as risk tolerant because if their food freezes up, they have no, they have nowhere to go. Right? Yeah, they got to so, go. And they so stay ahead of it. you'll see birds like um, blue wing teal and gadwall or you, you and I think of them as early migrants. It's just, they're just less risk tolerant because of the kind of bird that they are. And that, that counts and, widgeon as well, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, widgeon actually live on both sides of that. They widgeon have adapted to use grain fields, but they but they their their normal or for preferential diet has is are as much like gadwall. Right. Right. Think of them as like think of them like as grazers, right? They like uh, they like filamentous algae and certain kinds of uh, submerged aquatic vegetation. Well, but you know, you're talking about you know uh, there being an abundance of water. I know I was talking to people that have been hunting uh, up here uh, in Manhattan, Kansas, and they said there's so much water this year, um, like we don't even know how to hunt it anymore. Like because they and they, you're right. Um, I was talking to my buddy, Dave, who he's one of the local DU um, guys here. And, uh, you know, he was telling me, yeah, this happens. He goes, you know, once a decade, twice a decade, too much water and uh, really makes the hunting a lot harder. Yeah, because the birds have options. But as a uh, as a dedicated conservationist, I'm sort, I sort of see the other side, too. That put, That's going to mean a lot of uh, fat birds that return and potentially give us more production. Um, I say potentially, of course, because the prairies have been getting drier. I know you know you saw the numbers when they yeah. come, came came out, but like birds like uh, gadwall, gadwall was was way down this year, and um, and so we need it's time we need a, a good snowpack, which we have at the moment in the prairie for the most part, and then we need a wet spring up there so that those birds we didn't do we weren't able to do much damage to their populations over duck season and so we we need them to have really good breeding conditions um that'd be a good thing for us but that too is cyclic and uh you know it's not always good and it's not always bad the only certain thing we deal with is change right right and so if you had the the ear of you know the southern duck hunter right now what would you what would you tell them i would tell them that um it's really important waterfowlers as a group are aging and dwindling and and so it's when we when we turn on each other and we have infighting over over there being some sort of conspiracy to keep ducks from migrating or or it's the fish and wildlife services fault or ducks unlimited's fault or some state any state to the north of where you are is fault um all of that detracts us from what's really important and what's really important is that we band together, we speak with one voice in Washington, D.C., 
where I was just last month. And that we speak together with one voice that we, we use our consumerism in ways that advocate for what we care about, that we, uh, we become part of the solution and not part of the problem. It is, uh, in 1950, there was 152 million people in the United States. Today, as you and I are talking, there's 238 million people in the United States. That's twice as many, more than twice as many, um, sorry, 328 million. That's more than twice as many households. And everybody wants a car and four acres to live on and a four-bedroom, two-bath house. The, the resource stresses are real. We, in places like the Central Valley of California or the, the Gulf Coast of Texas, it, it, development is one of the biggest threats to waterfowl habitat. And that's not okay, right? There's only so much of it. And we have to have enough to carry the populations that the North American Waterfowl Management Plan prescribes for each one of these landscapes. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not okay for us. We have less waterfowl habitat in every critical landscape on the continent than we did in 1950 or 2000. And so that's, that's not okay because we don't know where the tipping points are, but we know that more is better and, and less is bad. Right. And so we need, we need to find a way to do more habitat conservation on state land, on federal land, on private land, in the five landscapes that have been determined to be critical for waterfowl. The, the prairies of the U.S. and Canada are one. The Central Valley of California is another. The Gulf Coast is another. And the lower Mississippi Valley is another. And the boreal forest is the last one. And they're, they're not in any order, right? Those are just the five landscapes that are critical to waterfowl and on our continent. You know, I kind of had an, well, I don't know if you'd call it an epiphany, but I definitely made a uh, connection here today. I had a dental appointment today and, um, you know, the hygienist is in there and the doctor, you know, the dentists are talking to me and they're like, you know, with, you know, teeth and your gums, it's, you, you can never get it back. Um, you can only, you know, whatever you walk in here today with, I give you the advice and the tools um, and that's, you have to make it better with what you got. And that's kind of how public lands and wetland uh, restoration kind of is, right? You know, when we take it away, when we put a, um, you know, a neighborhood over where, you know, a bunch of playas used to be or something like that, um, you know, you're not getting that back. So you have to be a little bit more efficient with what you do have. That's a pretty good epiphany. And so we do do some restoration work. But a, but a way to think about that, to sharpen that argument a little bit, it's a, the restoration is many times more expensive than protecting or saving what we have. Right. So your dentist can pull all your teeth and put implants in, right? And put we can put the DE logo on your front two teeth. It'll be awesome. <laughs> but it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to be very painful. And so we'd be better off if you just flossed and brushed Floss, right? and, yeah. and, and, and protected what you had. Exactly. Just got a floss. So, um, okay. So, you know, you were talking a little bit and, um, you know, I follow you on Facebook and you were just up on the Hill, right? Yeah. uh, We went, a a group of us, uh, the state chairman, uh, and the public policy, uh, chairman, and sometimes the state chairman elect, not everybody from every state, but we had a group of about 85 or so of us that went to the Hill like on the second day that the government decided to turn itself back on, 
<laughs> so it was a, that was a little bit odd, but we went to the Hill with a series of meetings with members of Congress. Remember, we have a whole bunch of new ones the 1st of January or the, you know, the beginning right. of 2019. And so a whole lot of people needed to hear from Ducks Unlimited, old and new members of Congress alike, about important public policy for waterfowl. Well, one of the truths is that we can achieve a whole bunch with a stroke of the pen on the president's desk via legislation, um, particularly with things like wetland protections, like waters of the United States right. or, or the North American Wetland Conservation Act or NACA, which was originally passed in the late 1980s. Um, or, and, uh, and that provides implementation funding, real money on the ground from the federal government. Now we have to match it, but, Real money on the ground from federal the federal government that allows us to implement the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. That's the magic of of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, which we call NAWAMP, is that it has implementation funding, which other other plans are just plans. A plan with implementation funding is actionable, and you can go and do stuff with it. And right. so, yeah, we were on, we were on the hill. And the, the, the first day we were out doing meetings with members of Congress, they dropped the bill. And, um, and so, you know, we do sign on letters and NACA is very important funding. And you know, the place it's the most important NACA was brilliant legislation for its day. And even today, because 45% of NACA dollars go to Canada, hmm. 52, 52 to the United States and 5% to Mexico. And so, it's, you think about that for a second. So here we have U.S. taxpayer dollars of one form or another going to another country, but they're going to another country not as foreign aid, but to help with a international resource, to help do breeding waterfowl habitat conservation so that more ducks migrate, which is that's really, I think, for the time, certainly visionary. It was uh, George Bush the Elder was the president when we uh, when they were able to get that done, and it's uh, it's a landmark piece of legislation for waterfowl. Um, we were also there talking, of course, about the farm bill. That's one of the important ways uh, that we do waterfowl conservation today with programs like CRP and WRP and and uh, some the CRP's conservation reserve program. Yeah. WRP wetland reserve program. If somebody and, wanted to understand, um, you know the the real big players um, or the, or the you know, pieces of legislature or things that go through each year, every four years or whatever. Um, what, what are those, you know, you got the farm bill, uh, like what are the main things that somebody would have to research to really understand, um, you know, how conservation works? Yeah. So you can go, one of the places to go is you can go to ducks.org. Um, and from there we have a policy page, where we get a package it for you, but I can go over it for sure. So, yeah, sure. so the North American Wetland Conservation Act, because it does so much um, in the, and it really only works well in the priority landscapes. And so, it, it, it's only about it authorized at a little over forty million dollars. So it's not a, it's not a treasure trove, but that's that's a really big one. The Farm Bill, because the Farm Bill has tons of conservation titles in it. Right. And so there's a, there are many, many ways that the farm bill helps with 
waterfowl conservation. And again, the conservation reserve program may be one of the really obvious ones. Right. As we, right. But um, there's many, many ways that, it, that the Farm Bill does that. And then you have other things like the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which can be really important. Uh, the Water Resources Development Act, WERDA. And it was another really important one. And that would cover the bulk of it right there would be the pieces of legislation that are that have significant um, waterfowl conservation pieces in it, even if they're not labeled as waterfowl conservation. pieces. Sure. So when you're when you go up here and you're talking, you know, um, to these politicians, uh, you know, how frequently is there? I know not a lot of them are, are duck hunters. Is it kind of strange for some of the, the newer ones? They see, oh, what is this? Ducks Unlimited is talking to me right now. And like, yeah. is there is there any of that that goes on? Yeah, for sure. And that's because the brand, the logo of Ducks Unlimited is so strongly associated with hunters. And hunters were hunters are who founded us. Hunters are, are our core of support. They're our most passionate and ardent uh, representatives out there. But what we are is a habitat organization. And so, yes, when I go into that office, um, they, they, they see me one way. But the conversation that the volunteers and I will have with those members of Congress isn't about hunting. It's about habitat. Right. Because it is, in fact, habitat that drives waterfowl populations. And so... Um, hunting has never been shown to be a significant uh, influence on waterfowl populations, but habitat has. And so we go and we have a conversation uh, almost certainly centered on uh, habitat benefits that are driven by legislation. Right. Right. And it can, Ben, it can be really, um, it can be really odd sometimes because you can tell when you go in to an office as Ducks Unlimited, if they're new and they don't know us, some of them are are off put off a little bit by that by right. us. I mean, one of the things we have to grapple with as as twenty nineteen hunters is that the social license for what we want to do is definitely changing. You could even argue that it's waning, and so we all have an obligation. This might be a bit of a tangent, but we all have an obligation to be extremely ethical and extremely good ambassadors for what it means to be a hunter conservationist. I follow a Australian um, duck hunting um, Facebook thing, and I am absolutely horrified that someday, um, you know, (laughs) we might have to face the challenges that Australian duck hunters face. When it comes right, to the pushback the, on on their yeah. social contract and the culture down there with it, that's right. And so, uh, one of the things you know, we all know that we need to bring young people and, or more people with us as we as we go about our journey as hunter conservationists. But we also, again, need to be conscious of the the how we're viewed and be be respectful of of the, the birds that we harvest and the way that we we speak about the birds that we harvest and the way that we harvest those birds. And it's, um, it's, um, it's, a, I think an obligation that we all share today to be uh, a bit gentlemanly and civilized about it. Um, if we want to, if we work, I'll be fine. My generation will be fine 
Um, but you're really always, and when you do this sort of stuff, you're working not on your generation, but your children's. Yeah. Right. And so what sort of world are, are we leaving for those folks? And, and, uh, what's the public perception of this thing that, that we love so dearly? Yeah, I, that is, it's so true. And, you know, oftentimes I, I've seen vid- Facebook videos or YouTube videos of guys, you can hunt right up next to the shore, right next to these houses. And uh, they're sitting there, and even though it's within their, their legal, you know, rights, they're just being, you know, more or less jerks. And I give it two or three years before you can't hunt that entire lake, you know, because right. of uh, public opinion and, and uh, being bad ambassadors. Yeah, and that's, I think, that's what I want your listeners to hear, is that when you do, um, when you go waterfowling, you, you, you do represent all of us. And we each have that obligation to be to be um, above even the suspicion of reproach, and uh, and and when you see that when you see the conservation officer behind your truck, you smile because you know you've got your license and your duck stamp and the gun's plugged and there's non toxic shot in the in the gun and right and that yeah. you've got your you've got your limit and you know how many pintails you can shoot and how many mallards you can shoot. We all have. We all have that obligation to to know the playing field that we're on. I think exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, another thing you know about ambassadorship is I used to take all my birds back behind my house and clean them in my backyard. Um, well, I started cleaning birds one one day on the back of my truck out in my driveway, and uh, I always said, you know, oh, I'm not going to do that because I want to be respectful of my neighbors and all this stuff, but. You know, no more than 10 or 15 minutes into cleaning these birds, I got two little kids, like, coming up to me and, like, asking what I'm doing and, like, looking at all my decoys and uh, just asking all these questions. And, um, you know, I was like, oh, man, maybe that's the, the way to go about it. But, you know, maybe that was a small win when you're not supposed to. But <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think, that, I think that's um, – there, there's room for that too, right? You want to show people that it's not – Look, all we're doing is going out there and procuring protein for our plates, and we're we're doing it in a way that's not very financially efficient for us. Don't tell my wife what it costs, <laughs> but 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 that's what we're doing, and and um, and and so that's another piece of it. The way I'm talking about it, like uh, waterfowl, kind of get a bad rap, I think, among some people as table fare, but it's superb uh, with a little care and cleaning and knowing how to cook it. And, and so that's another bit of ambassadorship that we need to do is, is showing folks that, uh, that these, these animals are awesome to eat. And, uh, and that's why I harvest them. Oh, my life changed uh, when I found out um, you cook a teal for two minutes on one side, one minute on the other in a hot, in a hot pan. Like, I, you know, I've been overcooking waterfowl this entire time. Same thing. The same exact thing happened to me. Um, so changing the subject a little bit, um, I'm right in the middle of, of, of one of the people that gets to work on Ducks Unlimited's international conservation plan. And what that is, it's really, a, if you think about the North American waterfowl management plan, a waterfowl, that plan sets out these population objectives. You know, we know we're striving for late 1970s waterfowl populations, and those are apportioned to all of those landscapes I listed earlier. So we know, for example, that the Gulf Coast is, is uh, allocated some almost 16 million, 15 million waterfowl 
from 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 Corpus Christi around to New Orleans, and uh, and so we know how much of that's a portion of private land, and how much the public land, and how much the federal public land within that. But Ducks Unlimited's international conservation plan really comes at it from the angle of well, for for all these species, how much habitat. What do we need to provide on the breeding grounds? What do we need to provide on the wintering grounds? And and how are we going to assess the return on investment? So I want you to think about it this way. When when I have a given pool of resources that I source from from, from Ducks Unlimited or from the public sector, I have a pool of resources, I'm going to make a series of investments with those dollars, just like you would in the stock market. And some are going to be high risk and some are going to be low risk and some are going to pay off quick and some are going to be really long pay payoffs and some are going to have a higher rate of return and some a lower rate of return. And there's a whole portfolio of investments out there, but they all, because we're Ducks Unlimited, are all subject to being assessed for, well, what is the rate of return? What's the balance between investment and risk and return? And so the ICP uses that rate of return logic, the International Conservation Plan uses that rate of return logic to look at, okay, what do we need to do in the prairies? Like, do we need to protect it or do we need to restore some of it? What the, what's the grassland versus wetland mix? You know, all of that stuff. And we do the same thing in the wintering areas and the migration areas. And it's a really important, I, I, I want the, the listenership to know that we, every five years, revamp that plan, rerun the models well, and take yeah, a look, take me, a, take a, take a look like? at her. You know, like, uh, yeah. What what is, what goes into that? Like, who is? Are there people you know that are really saying, "Hey, we gotta like, you know"? Does everybody kind of have their own thing? Like, this guy, he says, "Hey, we really need to put a lot of work into the to the prairie pothole region." And you're saying, "Oh no, you got to focus a little bit more on the Gulf Coast." You know, nope, how does it look? It, yeah, it doesn't work like that. So <laughs> it's really it's really it's really about the birds. So there's a there's a there's a team of of waterfowl. Almost, they're almost all waterfowl ecologists. Within within Ducks Unlimited, that uh, Ducks Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited Canada, to be clear, and uh, and so that that that's our science team, and the science team looks at the that at the landscapes that we're responsible for, which is the the five that I listed earlier, yep. and we do it in a spatially explicit way, i.e., you you basically can map the the landscapes for for production uh, potential for waterfowl in the prairies, it'd be breeding pairs per square mile, right? So you think of it like density maps. And so you, you look at those, th- those acres where you can really impact the most ducks. And then you look at what your treatments are to the landscape, whether think of it like grazing management plans or, or easements that don't allow it to be converted. You look at the threats. And so it's, it's effectively a computer model that lets that lets Ducks Unlimited um, assess the return as measured in waterfowl from its investments. Interesting. So I, I, I gather your team of ecologists or, or your science team, they're basically working pretty much, you know, round year to build this five-year plan and update it. Yeah, it has a. That's right. It's it's a living document. Certainly, there's there's it waxes and wanes the focus on it, but but that's right. It's a living document because one of the things it's fueled by is the body of research out there 
yeah. on on waterfowl, right? Like so, all of a sudden something crazy could happen. I can't think of what it would be. Oh yeah, so last year we had um, in in snow geese and Ross geese, you know, Arctic breeding geese. That it was really uh, wet and cold late into the spring, and so they had almost no production. And you you might have noticed that if you were hunting, you know, the in snow geese, you can see the juvenile birds. They're kind of gray colored compared right. to the white of the adult. And there just was almost no production. So you could have you could have something like that where right? you, you, you lost almost a whole year class, which is not quite unheard of, but not very common. Right. And and so it, let's say that population wasn't in very good shape. You might react to that. Now, it happens to be that those geese are are overabundant yeah right there's, yeah, there's exactly. right and so, and so there's not there's not necessarily a a, a conservation response Just but makes makes for tougher snow goose hunting boy does it ever <laughs> right it, as you probably know the average uh, snow goose in the central flyway is something on the order of 11 years old that's nuts. and, uh, Those and are that means they, they've, birds. they've seen your tricks before that's right they've seen you and they that's one of the things one of the reasons that some Southern hunters struggled is we've had mediocre to poor production for a couple of years in a row now. And what that means is more adults in the fall flight. Even if you're, even if the number uh, is still pretty good and it is um, the age ratio begins to slide. And so the birds that you're seeing around your decoys have seen your stuff before. Right. And so hunters six, Hunters get real frustrated when the ducks won't work. Well, in a year, in a winter like this, where you had lots of options for them and they were older, it just makes for a perfect storm of difficult waterfowling. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you were talking a little bit about, um, you know, all these, the models and the stuff that comes out. Is there a, uh, is that, is any of that transparent to the public or um, like, you know, for some real science minded like people that would like to, stay up to date with these kinds of, you know, updates, um, scientifically that is going to affect the waterfowl. Like where, where could they get this kind of information? You know? Yeah. So the North American waterfowl management plan, which is the big overarching framework is available to the public. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't actually know, uh, the, the URL by heart, but if, if one were to Google N A W M P you would get um, some other stuff, I imagine, but I, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan would be in there, and it's uh, good because that's a public document. DU's International Conservation Plan is also available at ducks at ducks.org, but don't go to it today because the new one isn't out there yet, and it'll be it'll probably be two months before that thing has got all the nails hammered in and the screws tightened down and and is out there. And just remember that both of these things go through periodic revisions. Um, the minute you look at it, it's obsolete because we're, sure. con- we're constantly refining the body of knowledge and our responses to um, to what we learn, so that we so that we get the most impact for waterfowl for for each dollar, whether it be a public or a private dollar. So you were talking a little bit about this, you know, the computer model, and I, I know that there's there's plenty of different um, you know ways that we can influence and create habitat for uh, ducks all along um, the migration. But, you know, uh, you have a limited amount of resources 
I'm sure. What what's the you know some of the first stuff that you know really gets lopped off, or you have to kind of make decisions? How does how does that decision making go? You know. Yeah. So um, the with, within the the discretionary resources that Ducks Unlimited has something on the order and it varies by fiscal year, but something on the order of three quarters of those dollars go to the Canadian prairies or the U S prairies because the production landscapes for waterfowl are the biggest driver for the numbers of waterfowl we have. It's sort of intuitive, right? That's right. The production landscapes are really important in the other landscapes, the central Valley, California, the Gulf coast, the lower Mississippi Valley, uh, we use a business model that is highly leveraged, which means we take a little bit of DU money and we leverage it against public investment to do to do things that are really important. One of the things we do is we work really hard in all DU landscapes, not just the level ones, to provide public hunting opportunities because we know that the barriers to entry in our sport are high and we want to make it as easy as possible for someone to access quality waterfowl. That is a, a challenge. Um, it never goes away. You work with state agencies, and s- sometimes the state agency will be real aggressive with that, and sometimes they won't be. Mostly they are because they recognize that we share a constituency. Like you are a Kansas duck hunter, so you're, you, you're a, you, can, you, you can be a DU constituent if you choose to. You have to be a Kansas Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks constituent because you have to buy a license, right? right. And and so um, and so in the in really in the all fifty states, we're trying to put public land habitat out there for for everybody because that's that's a really important thing to do. Ducks Unlimited started doing that uh, a long time ago, and it's still really central to what we do. Um, you ask, you ask the sort of what gets lopped off, what doesn't get done. So first the prairies get done, uh, then habitat and the other priority landscapes where we can attract somebody else's money gets done, and, and then public lands work gets done. And uh, eventually we do run out of money. Uh, we always run out of money. Right. And, uh, and, um, and so sometimes – Sometimes projects that that fall into lower priority geographies for waterfowl. I'm going to give you a great example. The state of Florida is a really wetland-rich state, but it's a challenge for Ducks Unlimited to work in because it's not, um, except for model ducks, it's not a and it's it's not a very critical waterfowl landscape. Sure. And I don't mean to disenfranchise any Floridians that are that are listening, because it's a really important place for waterfowl as well. It's just continentally, it's not. And so, yeah. we so we struggle to work there. And and so when we work there, we end up working on somebody else's money. Okay. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. Like I know that there is a big uh, project that's getting proposed up here for uh, Cheyenne Bottoms. I'm not sure if you've heard of it at all or not, but oh, of course, as as we covered last <laughs> time, I'm a little biased, right? That, right. Uh, um, and uh, and and so uh, Cheyenne Bottoms is a is 
it's it's a jewel, right? Like Hackberry Flats, just south of it in Oklahoma. Yes, sir. Um, and, and the rain and the rainwater basin in Nebraska, it's an absolute jewel. And one of the things that so you, so you and I might think Cheyenne Bottoms is awesome because we get to hunt on Cheyenne Bottoms sometimes. Right. But those those things that I listed for waterfowl, they're super important in the spring migration. Right. Their 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 spring migration habitat is limiting most of the time well it may not be population limiting but it's opportunity limiting so um spring migration habitats important in cheyenne bottoms and hackberry and the rainwater basin think of them like the stepping stones right up to central flyway right oklahoma kansas nebraska those birds uh uh you know here in the south i get a lot of uh ducks unlimited gets a lot of static the states do too right that uh you know somebody's got to be short stopping our ducks right so it's this, this is horrible. You know, you can't, you can't have any habitat delivered north of I-10. But if you think about the energy drain that it takes for a bird to migrate, they, they just like you have to pull over and get gas in your car every 300 miles. So do they. Right. And, uh, and, and so it's really important to provide those, those places, those, those filling stations along the migratory route where birds can get, can get food resources that they have to have to fuel that engine. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is what, you know, what makes a duck migrate. So we know photo period, we think we know photo period is what gives them the urge to migrate. But, but the proximate factor or the trigger is, uh, is more weather dependent. Right. And if you ever hunted in the, in the prairies of the North on a day when the wind blows hard, uh, out of the north, you watch sandhill cranes are the most obvious, right? They'll they'll start circling and get higher and higher and call and call and call, and then they just disappear like the Star Trek Enter- the Starship Enterprise, yep. right? Like like warp speed because they're riding that north wind, right? So day length gives them the urge, but they they wait for that for that crisp wind to ride on because they would. Why would you migrating into a south wind? That would be energy inefficient, right? Right, of course. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, so Cheyenne Bottoms is really important. I'm really, really proud of, of Kansas Ducks Unlimited, and I'm really proud of, of Ducks Unlimited and the state of Kansas for understanding the obligation they have. You know, wetland restoration work like that, it's frustrating because you do it, and then 20 years later, you're right back at the same place. It's not, it's not eternal because it's levees and water control structure and, and watersheds and drainage areas and, 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 and underground irrigation and pumps. And it's, it is a, it's a machinery and like all machines, they fail over time. Oh yeah. And, uh, and so D's been out there before, um, and, and D will be out there again as a partner to Kansas department of wildlife fisheries and parks, because that's good for duck hunters and for ducks. Yeah, and then, you know, I, I, I didn't kind of understand how the, the funding was being. I was like, oh, why is it such a big deal? They do work every year at uh, um, Cheyenne Bottoms. And then I was like, when I saw how much money was going into it this in this next couple years, and then they're going to be raising for it, uh, and you see like 25% of it is um, DU-generated funds, 25%, uh, I can't remember, some other generated fund, and then the other 50% was being you know, 
uh, hoisted by the the government, um, and everybody kind of combining their their money, you know, almost like college kids putting a putting a snow goose spread together or Canada goose spread together um, to get the most bang out of their buck. Yeah, that's what we call leverage, right? So yep. DU does this all the time. So DU will raise some some cash money and try to catalyze, often call us the spark plug of the conservation engine, right? So you have to catalyze something good to happen, and, and, you, and you start that with a little bit of money, and you bring money to the table. A lot of people have opinions, but not everybody will bring resources. Bring money to the table. It has an amazing way of, of sort of coalescing uh, direction and, and getting people, uh, other people to bring money to the table, and then if you're not careful, you do something great. And that, that takes us back to the beginning of the conversation. That is why it is so frustrating to see dissent amongst waterfowlers because there's not enough positive momentum. We are losing habitat faster than we're restoring it or protecting it. And so the last thing we need to do is squabble amongst ourselves. We should all be leaning very far forward into this uh, thing called North American waterfowl conservation. Right, right. And, and just like you said, it's it's kind of like, I guess some Southern hunters this year um, they were disappointed. And like I said, they'll 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 be on their high horse again in a couple of years, I'm sure. Uh, you know, shooting the ducks. But now, yeah, it's not the time. There's so many people uh, that would that are well. There's people that actively wish that hunting was not a thing and then even worse there's people that are completely apathetic uh to hunting yeah. and conservation that's that's right one of the things one of the things that dissent causes is it causes people to um to, to maybe take the opposition viewpoint and that's perhaps more healthy than the than the silent majority to just step off and they don't become part of the conservation solution. And so that's one of the things that I'd like your listenership to hear is that if, if you value waterfowl in some way or another, you have to be engaged in, 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 in waterfowl habitat conservation. There's lots of ways to do it, but you, but you absolutely have to be engaged because to do otherwise means you're a taker. Right. And so you're you're depleting things. You take more than you give. And we uh, the obligation that we have to the next generation is to give more than we take. Right. hundred percent. So what are you excited for um, in this next year? You know, what what's got you excited well, so that's a really good question, and because I'm I'm in a zone where um, um, I've I've been doing a lot of a uh, lot of travel uh, on the weekends. Thirteen states is a big place, and so you spend a lot of time at Ducks Unlimited leadership meetings with the volunteers. You spend a lot of time at the state conventions with the volunteers, or at the national convention with the volunteers. And and I'll tell you what. It's not about this next year, but one of the things that is a, is amazing after a couple of decades of working with Ducks Unlimited is the fuel that you get when your staff from those dedicated volunteers and, and sponsors and major sponsors of Ducks Unlimited, the people that are giving their time and their money to Ducks Unlimited 
a, I mean, in some cases, a staggering amount of time in order to raise those dollars that Ducks Unlimited uses to be that conservation spark plug. And I draw sometimes when I, you know, when it's day 27 in a row and I just want to sleep in one day, uh, I draw the fuel from those people that are, that are volunteering their, their zero compensation. All they, all they really get out of it is the satisfaction that they are working to make the, the next generation better than the one they have, right? The lot of the next generation better than the one they have. And that, that, that is, um, that's, that, that is very buoyant, right? That, that boys one's attitude as, as you go about the work that you do. The other thing I'll tell you, uh, I'm famous for saying this, uh, money is the answer to the question just changes the, uh, for me, because I, because one of the things I handle is a lot of our coastal work, uh-huh. the, the old, in April of 2010, we had the, the deep water horizon tragedy, uh, 54 miles south of New Orleans where 11 men lost their lives. And that, that created the largest ever environmental disaster in the United States. And you remember reading all that stuff, I suppose. And, oh yeah. And now nine years later, that money is beginning to make itself to the landscape in a, in a meaningful way. And, and that provides the funding, the tragedy has a, has a, 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 some good aspects to it. And the good aspects are um, meaningful levels of conservation funding um, along the Gulf Coast that we ha- hadn't seen before and wouldn't have seen without that oil spill. And super frustrating for a naturally impatient guy like me to wait nine years right. for, the, for the money to work itself through the system. But, but in, the, in the next year, you begin you begin to see that in real terms, and it's not as though that money hadn't hit in any place before, but the but the bulk of it is beginning to manifest itself, and that that's pretty exciting to see nine years of hard work trying to get duck projects to the front of the list st- start to pay off. <laughs> right, right. So, what has you? Um, well, I guess what has you kind of concerned this year? Okay, so I get to go um, because my dear wife is from Saskatchewan. I'm lucky, and I get to go to the prairies every fall and hunt. Oh man! And, at, and I have watched <laughs> it get drier and drier. And so, you want to know one of the things that keeps me up at night? It's what do we do with a real crisis? So this year we have a mini crisis. We have bad duck season in the south, and we have a lot of. of, of disenfranchised waterfowlers who are making their, um, their angst known and that that is a periodic challenge that we deal with. But a real crisis would be a five year drought on the U S and Canadian prairies, waterfowl populations at half or less than they are now 30 day seasons, right? That's right. a real crisis. Yeah. And it's a cri- crisis we've seen before. Uh, and it's a crisis that's all but guaranteed to show up again because, like ducks, uh, prairie habitat conditions are cyclic, right? They go up and down. And we've been in this we have been in this crazy cycle. It's all, almost unprecedented, right? So the the first sixty day duck season of this run was something like ninety six ish, 
Don't quote me on that, but that'll be plus or minus a year. And here we are in 2019, right? Yep. And we've been a steady run of of a full uh, federal framework, liberal season, liberal bag limits and liberal seasons. And I really worry about what happens when, when, not if, when the next drought comes, what happens to the people that support waterfowling? What are we going to learn about the habitat losses in wintering and migration areas that are being masked by wet prairies? We're, you know, we're strong as the weakest link. I'm afraid we're going to find a bunch of weak links and uh, in, in a lot of ways. And that does keep me up at night because it could be in the, in the early 1960s, we almost didn't have a duck season. Waterfowl populations were so low. And, and we made it through then. We made it through that knothole. Well, here in the, in the whenever it happens in the 2020s, we just have a whole lot less participation in waterfowling as a support. And what happened? Is a five-year drought an extinction-level event for waterfowlers? Huh. Probably not, but maybe. And that keeps me up at night because I literally have no control over it. Yeah, that, uh, that definitely paints like, um, uh, you know, part of my goals is to recruit and educate and, you know, get new hunters into the game. And I think that would be a, a long, dark night for me um, and for all of us. You know, we're kind of all living in the sunshine right now and you know and we, I've, I've only ever known sunshine so and i think i think that's all that's right and so really it's you so i started hunting in 82 right which was in the just starting to slide into the last drought that we were in and uh and um michael furtman wrote on the wings of the north wind and if you haven't read it you should get it and read it because he he's wondering whether it's all over as he writes that book, right? He's, he's wondering at, at Merle Haggard said, are the good times really over? Right. And, and he's fearful in that book. And of course it, it did rain and we did deliver as much waterfowl habitat as we could. And we had, we had a rebound and, and it's been, it has been really good for more than a couple of decades now. And, um, but it's not going to stay that way. And so one of the things we have to do is to, educate people and hopefully this podcast is one of the ways to do that educate people that it is a cyclic resource it does go up and down and our job is to set the table so that when the rains come that we have adequate grassland for for ducks to nest in and then we have adequate migration and adequate wintering habitat so ducks return with a healthy pair bond and lots of body fat and so they can make the next generation of waterfowl. It's an, it's a, the notion of sustainability is applied to waterfowl, but it does wax and wane with the wetness and the quality of the habitat on the U.S. and Canadian prairies. That's a big deal, and that's why there's so much focus um, of DU dollars on those landscapes, because those production landscapes are critical. Not that the other landscapes aren't, right? Cheyenne Bottoms is important, right? It's important to you and me personally. But, but, it, but it doesn't drive population like someplace in Saskatchewan might. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, you know, when the, when the bad times do show up, not if, right? Right. When the bad times do show up, you know, what, 
what do we need to be doing now? And then what do we do when we're faced with, you know, that problem? Like how, how would you advise? Cause you know, um, let's, you know, hopefully it's not during your tenure or, or your time and, or something like that, you know, hopefully we, we just can ride this out for a long time. But, um, when the bad times do come, what would you tell those that are going to be, you know, taking up the fight right before, you know, like, you know, I think, cause I think that the people that are going to be fighting that fight are out there and probably not actually, um, in their roles maybe right now. So the, the, the thing that's critical is that you, you mitigate the effects of the, of the, of the drought when it comes by, by ensuring, um, that you get the, the, the best rebound possible. Uh, and the way you do that is by having adequate nesting cover and, and by protecting the ability of those, of those wetland basins, those sort of the geomorph geomorphologic shape of the landscape. So you don't want that basin to be impaired so that when the rains come, it does, it does puddle the rain, right? We, right. we know that the, the little ephemeral wetlands are the most productive water production waterfowl landscape features right and so so our job basically is think of it like setting the table in all in all of our landscapes we want to set the table we can't you can't drought proof the world right you can't yeah. it's just that's asking too much so you you set the system up as best you can so that when the rains come the waterfowl have the opportunity to take advantage of it one of the great things about ducks is they have wings and they they can find the 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 suitable habitat where it lies and and you do so they'll move to wherever it is like you know, canada and north dakota are both pretty big places and so they're not it's hard to make the whole state dry and so the the ducks will move around they'll take advantage of what resources they can find and it's the it's our our, our obligation as conservationists and, and in my case as part of a conservation organization to simply ensure that the system has enough capacity to rebound when the, when the rains come. And so that means not allowing or, or trying to uh, not allow, it's not the right way to say that, but trying, trying to, to keep wetlands from being drained because once they're ditched, then they don't have the capacity to fill anymore and to keep, to keep grasslands in proximity to those wetlands. So birds have someplace to nest. I mean, that's it. You just have to do enough of it to matter. And scale, scale is what's vexing in all of our landscapes because it, the pressures on landscapes are intense. Development pressures, pressures to plow up that grassland and grow some crop there, uh, pressures to, to drain the wetland to get the water out of the way. Um, there's a lot of those pressures on the landscapes. And so you have to work very hard to do enough, fast enough to make a difference. Yeah, um, you know, I would. It's my absolute dream to just uh, go on one of those waterfowl uh, surveys that they do um, up there, and uh, you know, be in the plain or uh, be walking the, the grassland just to see, just to see, uh, you know, the the vastness of it. But then also just to realize how quickly it can get, you know, taken away by the, yeah. the town next over or, you know, this highway or whatever it is going to be, you know? Yeah. The, uh, the, 
it, it does. It seems, it all seems pretty tenuous sometimes when you're, when you're in that landscape and, and, and somebody's taking their quarter section of CRP out. And so they're burning it and you, you stand there and look at that fire and you know, really that 160 acres doesn't really matter in the landscape of things, but it feels like it. Right. And, and maybe it does matter, right? It, because it's not just that one landowner's actions. It's all of them compounded each other. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, acre by acre, um, project by project, easement by easement, landowner by landowner, um, that's how Ducks Unlimited works. And that's a real, the hard way of doing it, right? To, to do habitat conservation that way is the hard way. I think one of the things that, that, when people come up with alternate theories about, you know, hey, why was my duck season bad? They're often looking for a way, a short circuit or an easy button to more abundant waterfowl. And so you, you, you've seen that in the past with, with uh, organizations maybe advocating for predator control or, or hen houses or, uh, or d- doing something different with, uh, you know, what's allowable agricultural practices. But those, those are all distractions from the hard reality of, of ne- really needing to do habitat at scale that matter. And, and that message isn't so palatable because it's the hard way. The, there, there does not appear to be a shortcut here. We have to deliver enough long-lasting converse, conservation on the, on the prairies, uh, the migration of the wintering areas to matter. And that's a hard and expensive pathway and uh, everybody wants an easy button that uh, the science just doesn't indicate is there. Yeah, I mean, to to get buff, you got to go work in the gym, right? No, man, I can buy one of those. I can buy a, like, one of those suits that you see at Halloween. I'll zip it up. You'll never be able to tell. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's right. And and uh, and I, I wish I had a an easier message, a more palatable message. But but it, it it's it's not right. It's landscapes capable of supporting waterfowl are also the landscapes that humans are dependent on, and this is often overlooked, right? So we need we you and I need you you expect when you take a shower in the morning that that clean water is going to come out of the shower head and that you're going to be able to do your laundry and and uh, as you as you travel uh, so, sometimes not. In, inside our country and sometimes internationally, you'll notice that it's become more and more common to have a sign saying, don't drink the water. And I think that's interesting because we've, we've sort of let that become normal. Right. It's not, it's not normal and it's not good. And, and so one of the things that happens when, when, when you do waterfowl habitat conservation, the way Ducks Unlimited does it is you're creating a water quality benefit amongst many others. But you're creating these environmental and social benefits. You're doing it the hard way. Doing waterfowl habitat the hard way is frustrating, but you do get all of these other benefits. And DU doesn't have a very good language to talk about that. But some some little old lady in Leonardville, Kansas, is benefiting from water from Ducks Unlimited's work, even though she's never picked up a shotgun. Right. Let's see. Yeah, what do they say? Like, I know that I think you said it last time. What's good for the the bird is good for the herd, and probably <laughs> the people too. So, 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, thank you for saying herd. So one of the things that we we are figuring out how to do in the last decade is work with producers on working landscapes. And so cattle are a very important partner for all of us waterfowlers. Cattle producers, they need grass and water, so the ducks. It's a marriage made in heaven. In the in the south, uh, rice producers are are creating managed wetlands. So you can you can have wetland benefits from an agricultural system, another marriage made in heaven. And we the we me, I need to continue to strive and my colleagues to look for places where a landowner can make a living off a piece of land and we can spin off waterfowl conservation and other social benefits of that uh, of that system, that that economic system that exists on those acres. That's very important because it gives us a tremendous ability to work at scale and scale is very important. It doesn't matter what you do if you don't do enough to matter. So through the flyway, um, you know, going north from south to north, you know, there's, you got guys that own anywhere from, you know, four to 10 to 400 acres, you know, that, uh, that they've got, um, what can they do, you know, working north, I guess, um, to make, to carve out some, some habitat or some conservation, you know, friendly stuff on there, uh, instead of just, you know, having the cows pay the taxes? Yeah, so that's really an interesting question, and it varies so much by landscape, right? So if, if you are in a, in a uh, say, say from Kansas north, right? So then if you have, if you have grass out there, then then you're going to have upland bird habitat. And if you have grass and water, not in Kansas, but in South Dakota and North Dakota, you're going to have waterfowl habitat. And, and so what, what they can do in, in the, in those prairie landscapes is, is not drain their wetlands and, and, and keep their grass healthy using the tools of fire and haying, Right. Right. So, so that they, so they don't have woody invasion and that sort of stuff. Like where you are now, like uh, we might've touched on this last time, but the Eastern red cedar um, invasion into those grasslands is one of the fastest rates of, of landscape conversion in the world. And it's happening right in front of our faces. And that's why the Flint Hills have a culture of burning is to push back against that. But you know, that's a fairly rare thing. Most people are scared of fire. Yeah. Just not, just not Flint Hills cattle ranchers. Um, Aldo Leopold, um, in, in his book, Sand County Almanac, I'm sure you've read. Mm-hmm. I, the, one of the, my favorite stories in there, or my favorite essays in there is when he talks about the, the battle of the, of the plains and the battle of the plains, you know, it's a, it's a war fought between, uh, grass and, and trees <laughs> and uh the you know the biggest ally that the grass had was uh the fire you know that would take out any of the the trees because the grasses would come back the trees wouldn't and i just when people came around you know we started quelling fires and uh we like trees <laughs> so uh the the, the prairie kind of law is losing as it were it is and the other the other piece of that is so fire sets back succession, um, and that's what you want. And so to get to your earlier question about what somebody can do, like so in the south, um, w- wetlands, too, are much more productive when you can set back succession 
And so if you, in the South there, many of them, you have water control. So you dry them up and then you would disc them or perturb them and then, and then put water back on them and boom, you get this explosion of biomass of moist soil plants. Right. And that, that creates a very uh, productive wetland for waterfowl and a bunch of other things too. <clears throat> the problem is in both cases, setting back succession is hard work or it's expensive. There's no, there's no easy button there either. Right. And so, and so sometimes people don't want to do it because it's either expensive or difficult. And, uh, but you really need to in your grass landscapes and in your wetland landscapes to, to manage your succession, to keep it in an early successional stage where it's more productive. Right. You know, I, I'm going to be talking to my, the guy that I have permission from, I'm going to be talking to him here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, Gosh, I just, I, I, he, they, to pay the taxes, you know, he lets the, the cattle come in uh, with the ranchers and whatnot. And I just, like, I think maybe it's too much um, and that there's not enough, like, I mean, there's, like, the grass health there I don't think is great at all. Um, and uh, the the one pond that's on the, on the property, it, there's really only like, two ways into the pond and everything just gets trampled and eaten around there. And so, um, I, there's organizations that you can reach out to, right? Like to help like consult you on this kind of stuff. Yeah. The number one, uh, free one is the natural resource conservation service. Yep. What we know is the NRCS. And, uh, and so you bet there are, um, and, uh, in some places, uh, where we have where DU has enough staff, then we're able to do that as well to give folks um, advice, if you will. We call it technical assistance, but it's really advice on what they could do to manage their property better. Um, and uh, but in in uh, some place like uh, the the middle of Kansas, the state agency also often has private land biologists. I, I shouldn't give them short shrift, and so often. Um, uh, KDWFP in your case would be able to send a biologist out there to do that, and um, and you never know, right? Sometimes there's money, uh, pollinator money, or right, and yeah. So those yeah. those field bi- those field biologists in those individual counties are the, uh, um, the, the whether they're federal or state, they're the logical starting yeah, place. Yeah, one of my one of my dad's friends, um, he uh, used to let cattle, you know, graze on his property, and um, well, now he planted a bunch of tree I, I can't remember what or a couple bushes or something like that and he's a he's a butterfly rancher now um it, it pays the you know the taxes just like the cows did but it's uh only for butterflies it's it's not for cattle <laughs> so that may that may sound crazy but in this world with uh pollinators being on such a decline the the actual value of a dang butterfly is higher than you think yeah um as with anything else uh, you don't know what you have until it's gone logic. Yep. And so now that we don't have enough pollinators, uh, then all of a sudden pollinator habitat's a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how it all plays together. Well, so did you, uh, did you get out in the marsh at all? Um, this season? Uh, yeah, I, I did. I had, uh, I, I had the worst duck season I've had in the last 25 years. Um, but I was, uh, able to kill a few birds, uh, Mostly in uh, in Mississippi and um, 
we just had really wet conditions. Birds had lots and lots of options, and we didn't even get close to a freeze. So we never quite got to push a duck. It felt like you were shooting or trying to shoot the same birds over and over again. <laughs> and so it, it was in that way pretty dang frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your sentiments are right there. So, yeah, but you know what? That one of the advantages of having started the duck hunt in 1982 in, uh, in Kansas, right. Is that you, I, I have a different sensibility about it. Right. I realize that I'm pretty lucky anytime I harvest the duck and I take a great deal of pleasure out of doing that. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not because I'm inside the system. I know what's going on. And so I'm not, there's no vast conspiracy here attempting to defraud me of ducks. It's just some seasons are better than others. And, uh, I'll do my best. One of the things, one of the things that's true is hunter satisfaction is tied to, uh, limiting because it's, that's linked to our egos, right? The, I might have mentioned this last time, but sort of the implicit nature of a limit is the only thing that kept me from filling this whole pickup bed is the law. That's how good a duck hunter I am. Right. right? And, and so, and so that's why we take it so dang personally when we have a bad duck season, because it seems to indicate that we might not be very good duck hunters. Right. And your, your, your duck calling isn't as good and your decoy spread isn't as good. And there's something wrong and it, it does, it shakes you. Right. You begin to question your abilities a little bit, but there are bigger forces at play with waterfowl production and age ratio and habitat availability. Uh, ducks do not come south, contrary to what you might have read. They do not come south for you to kill them. They come south because they have business to attend to in pair bonding and gaining weight so that they can go north again. And so sometimes it just doesn't work out. Very well put. <laughs> well, all right, Jerry, do you have any uh, parting words for the, for the foul front? I'm going to do it again. I'll do what I did. Uh, this will be the third time. Um, if you can hear this podcast, that means you have an interest in waterfowl. Please get involved. Vote. Vote for, for legislation that is, that is good for what we care about, waterfowl and waterfowl habitat. Spend your money that way. Use the your power of your consumerism to to drive things the way you want to do want them to be. Get involved. Uh, support some conservation organization with your time. Someone once said, um, "Get a rich man to give me money, and I'm impressed. But get a busy man to give me his time, and I'm very impressed because you can't make any more time. Use your time. Use the the force that each individual is to make a difference. It's our obligation." Uh, to the next generation to, to make a difference failing to do so will not end well that's what i fear and so i think we all have an obligation to do that and, and uh, i appreciate again uh being allowed on your airways ben and, and getting to participate uh, what you do is important because we have got to get the message out that you have to be a giver and not just a taker yes sir yes sir um, and do you have any messages for, you know, uh, the DU members out there or those that aren't the DU members uh, on what we can do to be better givers in this off season? Well, sure. I mean, so if I'm talking to DU folks and non-DU folks, um, 
the one of the most effective things you can do, and here's I'll shamelessly plug Ducks Unlimited, but is to is to is to volunteer. And that has the amazing advantage of you get to hang out with other people that, that like what you like. And one of the things that I've noticed in a couple of decades of working for Ducks Unlimited is I meet people from all cross sections economically and geographically across this country. And we all love the same stuff. And so there's instant conversation right there and instant camaraderie. And so if you can find your local chapter and, and get involved with Ducks Unlimited, it pays you in 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 the ducks unlimited family right the famous uh former de president john tomkey said i came for the mission and stayed for the people you get that you get the the people aspects of ducks unlimited and we do band together and try to make a difference and there is some comfort in being with other people fighting this fight now to be clear i came for the mission and stayed for the mission right for me it's about waterfowl and waterfowl habitat but I do, I do, as I said earlier, I'm buoyed by the people. And, and I would tell you that you will get more out of that than you give, as ha- often happens with charitable work. Um, it, it is tremendously fulfilling to work on something that's bigger than yourself. And uh, I would say if you haven't tried it, you should, and you'll thank me for it later. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of events around, so just go uh, Google your local or go to, go to ducks uh, ducks.org right and uh, yeah. look up your state and see what's what events are coming up because there's a lot of them in the in the summertime and the uh, the spring and and uh, they're they're a lot of fun both both of my children are legacy green wings that means I paid one lump of cash and they're they're they get the puddler magazine until they're 18 or however old it is but I had them both at the Arkansas State Convention this last weekend and it it's just great to watch my children then begin to um, sort of interact with the with that group of people. They're they're this in the month of March they'll be thirteen and ten, right? So they're just just now starting to function like people, right? Uh, and, instead of kids, even though they're kids, right? But they they begin to form their own interests and and one of the things I'd like it if they did is. Um, It'd be involved and look if they end up uh, living in montana and are more drawn to the rocky mountain elk foundation well that's great they're still engaged in giving and not just taking and 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 that's my take-home message right is that it's an obligation for us to be to be contributors to waterfowl conservation in one way or another exactly exactly all right, Jerry. I appreciate you coming on uh, once again. It's always, it's always. I look forward to these every time we do them, and I look forward to the next one already. Even though I don't even have this one edited and put out yet, um, but uh, yeah, I, I really look forward to you. And uh, still got to get you back up here to, to Kansas to hit some of the old stomping grounds. For for sure, I need to do that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast Group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great-great-grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can 
get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like and we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right, stay safe out there and we will see you next week. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither, but hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.